Dear Father, thank You, Lord, that we're back in Isaiah tonight. Thank You, Father, that the text of Isaiah can be explored in such a deliberate way over the last several months. Prepare us for how You would choose to make use of this in our lives, that we would be ready to use it in some specific way, that we would be grown and matured in our faith through it. Father, I also pray that whatever we may learn tonight, we may choose to share with others and we may be able to uh, put to uh, some good use in our own ministry. Make all these things happen, Father, in your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in the first third of 2nd Isaiah. So let me just remind you of where the pattern takes us tonight. I'm not going to go through it all again in detail, but I want to take you through at least the first part of it. There are three parts to 2nd Isaiah. We're in the first third. The first third tonight is we're going to end up, we're going to end chapter 40 and we're going to go all the way through 41. What were the essential uh, signposts for the first third? What's it about? What distinguishes it from the other two thirds? We, we focus on God the Father. The first third of Second Isaiah looks at God the Father within the Godhead. Yes, about His authority and His sovereignty, His greatness, His preeminence. Then we looked at the call that went out at the end of that introduction last week. The calls, there were three calls. They also paralleled the three sections. There was an encouragement to... Make a way for the Son, right? It corresponds to John the Baptist's call that make a straight path for the coming King. So the first third is about God the Father. It's also about, if you will, His work in preparing a way for His Son who will come. That's a general way to look at the text that we're going to see tonight. His incomparable greatness and so on. Uh, In the first part of tonight, chapter 40, to finish chapter 40 specifically, we will look at that first theme, the incomparable greatness of God. Now, that's going to sound very familiar. Some of what you're going to hear tonight is going to sound very familiar from chapter 40 if you are familiar with, for example, Job or Psalms or other works of Scripture where you see God Himself speaking in the first person about how magnificent and great His power is within His creation. So, when He was inspecting Job, if you know the end of the story of Job, and He says, who else has done this? And who else has done that? And and His... Questions are all rhetorical because the answer is always obvious. Only God. Well, he's going to start chapter 40 with that same line of thought. It'll lead us directly into 41. We're going to move through 40 fairly quickly. But like always, there are some interesting points along the way that are worth taking a second. So that's what I'm going to try to do in chapter 40 is focus on some highlights, interesting uh, points that expand our understanding of the text. Most of the text, though, stands on its own. It's not hard to see what Isaiah is, is saying. Look, for example, at verse 12, which is where we pick up tonight. So this verse 12 is right after the introduction. 1 through 11 was the introduction. Verse 12 starts 2nd Isaiah's first third proper. And it's chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? You see the pattern there? Sounds like Job almost, right? Almost like a, a psalm. There's a series of contrasts here, but look at, the, look at the structure of this. It's a little bit more complex than you might assume just reading it once through. He's comparing our experiences to God's experience, putting God in the position of a man, as it were, having hands and things like that. And he uses these human terms to describe God's limitlessness and the absurdity of trying to do some of the things that God alone can do if you were man. All right? So all of these questions that he asks here begin with who. 
Each one looks at who could do what God alone can do in his power, in his own power. And he uses opposites here. You notice that water and dirt to illustrate the completeness of the comparison from A to Z would be another way to look at it. So look at them specifically. Who measured the sea in his palm? All right, if you think of it literally for you and I, you can measure maybe an ounce or two of liquid in your palm. God, were he to have a physical hand, could put the entire oceans in his hand. And I mean, think about that. Don't think of it merely as metaphor. Think about it if it could be made to be literal in your sight. What would that look like? And by the way, I don't think this is entirely metaphor. I think it is literal in the sense that God, though he does not have a physical hand in the same way we do, he does have the power, as it were, to control his creation, even the power to scoop up and hold the waters of the earth if that were his desire. It may not come in the form of a physical hand. It may be done through some other manifestation, but he has the power to do it where we can barely scoop a little bit of water. There's a contrast where you begin to see your smallness in comparison to God's greatness. Next one, God marked off, or who marked off the universe with a span? A span literally means from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb. That's what a span is, technically. So the span that we can encompass with our hand is what God is able to do with the limitless, unimaginable distances of the entire universe. You know, you, you often hear in astronomy different ways to explain just how vast the universe is. And even then, that's only what we can observe. We assume more goes beyond what we can observe. And God's hand, as it were, can span that distance. God can furthermore measure the dust of the earth precisely. Again, not metaphor, literal. I, I lose count with the socks in my drawer, which means an unimaginable kind of wisdom. Finally, he could weigh mountains precisely as if they were set on a, on a scale or a balance. To the question then of God's power, it is clearly without limit and without comprehension. Then secondly, verse 13 and 14, Isaiah asks new questions. Now the issue isn't power, the issue is wisdom. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The questions now are obvious. Again, I don't need to belabor them. Who, by the way, has ever directed God's spirit other than God himself? Or who's ever taught God anything he didn't already know? The answers are obviously no one because there's nothing apart from God except his own creation. And if the only thing apart from God himself, as we understand it, is his own creation, then nothing that he created could ever give back to him something he didn't already have. You can think of it in your own experience. Anything you could possibly create with your own hands and wisdom can't exceed you. Can't know something you didn't give it to know. The holy grail of, of computing is to find a, an artificial intelligence that can do things on its own. But you know, despite what we may say we've created or even label as such, the truth of it is those are machines that only do what they're programmed to do to the extent of our knowledge of programming. And when they run up against the limits of what we can imagine in programming, they hit their limit. They can never exceed our own knowledge. That's a, that's a science fiction fantasy. It's not a reality for us. Similarly, nothing God created could ever know more than God himself, by definition. Moving forward, 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, the third part of this trifecta of God's greatness is comparing God's power to the inconsequential power of the nations of men that are on the earth. 
So now the, the issue is the powerlessness, the insignificance of the earth and everything that's in it, particularly the nations. All the nations of people are as if a drop in a bucket. Now, we use that phrase a lot, and I think it's lost some of its meaning unless you bring it back to mind in a literal way. If I take, think of it in the negative, if I take a drop out of a bucket, can you tell the difference? No. Similarly, what he's saying here is, from God's point of view, he would barely notice it, if at all, if all the nations of the earth cease to exist. In terms of significance, we're not assigning here value for the sake of God's love. We're talking here about power and significance. All the people, you think about how much it, power seems to be uh, evident in nations on earth, billions of people, all the energy, all the thought, all the wisdom that comes with that collective group of, of living beings, and it's like a drop in the bucket to God. It means nothing. He goes further. He says, we're like specks of dust on a scale. Literally, before you put the fruit in it, look in the scale. The dust that's in there, that's how much does it register on the scale? That's how much we register, as it were, on, on God's scales from a standpoint of significance or power. Then a couple of little examples there at the end. Lebanon, Lebanon was renowned in its day for the cedar forests and the tree forests that it had. And the thought is you could take all the wood in Lebanon and all the animals, and that's still not enough to create a worthy sacrifice for God. Not enough wood to burn, not enough animals to sacrifice. So altogether, the nations of men are nothing. That last phrase in, in verse 17, in Hebrew, the phrase is actually nothing, nothingness, and utter confusion. The nations are nothing, nothingness, and utter confusion. And as a result, God's greatness is magnified by his creation. Now, we typically think of this a little differently. We, if I were to tell you that God's greatness is magnified by his creation, you might agree, but you'd probably assume I meant it in a certain way, that I meant when you look around and you see how great creation is, it tells us how great our creator is. That's not wrong, maybe, but that's not what Isaiah's point is. He's saying, you look at the insignificance of the universe in comparison to the one who created it, and that magnifies God. It's like putting something small next to something really big makes the thing that's really big look that much bigger. How do we tell scale on a photograph sometimes? We put a little man next to it, right? How big is a blue whale? Put a little man next to it and you see how big the blue whale is, right? That's the sense of what he's saying here. God's limitless power, his wisdom, and his significance is made more evident by the insignificance of creation, and particularly the nation's. That's the prologue. Now, verse 18 gets interesting. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. To uh, he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he uh, it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. So this is a new set of questions now. Obviously, 
still driven on the same point, God's unique power. The theme now is just one of nothing can compare to him. And he makes some, some statements along here that are quite interesting. Some are really filled with irony, particularly the beginning. So this first third that focuses on God the Father really zones in, narrows down onto idols. Now remember something I said last week. It's first third is about God the Father. The second third is about the Son. The first third is about how God prepares a way for His Son. The book also, remember, dealt with a new enemy, not Assyria now, but Babylon. And it dealt with idol worship, at least in the first third particularly. Think about it. Idol worship is one of those hills that stands in the way of making a straight path for the coming king. So the first third, as we focus in on God the Father, will quickly now turn to a focus on idols specifically. And we're set up for that discussion nicely now because God has established his preeminent power. There is nothing that compares with him. No equal, no, no even close second. And as a result, it's in a, he's in a position now to talk to the nation and talk about idol worship as something that is nonsensical when you understand who God is and ultimately will be judged by Babylon. And in Babylon's coming judgment over Israel, they put an end to idol worship in Israel forever, which we talked a little bit about last week. We'll see that develop now in the text. So the theme is nothing compares with God. Look at how he talks about idol worship with irony here. He says, would you compare God to the idols made by men? First, he says, you have, in some cases, the better craftsmen able to take gold and silver and make an idol out of it. Uh, that's someone who has enough money to afford a good God. But the poor idol worshiper, they have to go out into the forest and find wood for their idol. So the value of your God depended on your financial condition. Not everyone could have an equally good God. And then he goes forward to say, the poor person... He mocks him here by saying that person had to be careful not to pick wood that would rot because we wouldn't want our God to rot. It's bad if your God rots. And in the world of idols, the very best kind of idol you could make, and this is the way they valued their idols, a really good idol stayed put. It was stable. It had a good base and it was heavy enough it wouldn't topple over. Not good to have your gods toppling over. So he's, it's literally for irony and even for a bit of humor that Isaiah is making fun of these people by how they chose what they thought was good. They were looking for things in their God that suited the nature of their gods. They were, they were mute and they were dumb and they were still and they, they, they couldn't move, so they had to be able to stand still and not topple. And they were made of elements that could decay, so they had to pick elements that wouldn't rot too quickly. I mean, it just illustrated the pointlessness of it all, the stupidity of it all. And Isaiah rebukes them for considering something like that to be equal to God's glory. He says, don't you ever listen, even from the beginning, the declaration from the beginning. What declaration was in the beginning? Well, it refers to creation, right? It's probably to Genesis 1. But I would also argue in the New Testament you could go to Romans 1. When Paul says in Romans 1.19, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So Paul himself makes the point that the creation came out of God. So how can man, how can men ever believe that anything in creation could compare to what to the one who created it? It goes back to the earlier argument. Nothing in creation can compare to the one who created it. Then he goes on. He talks about rulers. Nothing 
can compare to God the Father in majesty. You notice something interesting in verse 22? Again, another highlight I want to point out. Look at verse 22. We're told God sits above the circle, or the word in Hebrew there is the round of the earth. Doesn't that strike you as interesting? God sits above the round of the earth. Remember, these words are written nearly 2,200 years before a man named Christopher Columbus circled the earth and put to an end, at least forever, the, at least at his time, the thought that the earth was flat. Scripture has been talking about a round earth from the beginning. By the way, Psalms, uh, there's a psalm that repeats the same thought. So you had people writing about this in God's wisdom long before men knew it. Isaiah then goes on to repeat God's power over the universe. We're insignificant as grasshoppers. grasshoppers. All the rulers and judges of the, of the nations come into power and are deposed under God's authority. So men are insignificant. And if men are insignificant, how important then are the idols that men craft for themselves? out of materials that are on the earth, which were created by God. Who can compare to God? Now, if you still need an answer, Isaiah reminds you at the very end there, start counting the stars. Today you can't see stars anymore, but when you used to be able to look out your window and see stars, kids actually played who could count the most or things like that, right? When you realize, after trying that and tiring of it, that God himself not only created them and can count each of them, but named all of them. And knows the names of all those stars. And, it, and you know, of course, scientists tell us how many billions of billions there are. For God, that's like counting his kids. It's trivial. It puts in perspective the power of the Creator in comparison to the creation and holds us at bay from ever considering anything created to be worth our attention or concern in comparison to God. Then in verse, verse 27, he goes on. He says, What do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So now, in light of all the greatness that he's just echoed in chapter 40, his omniscience, his omnipotence. Isaiah now turns to making an application. So here's the application God makes for his audience. Now, in Isaiah's day, the audience was Israel. For us, you know, obviously today, we are the audience, those who would read God's word. And his application is an interesting one. His application is, do you think God, being so great and so omniscient, is fooled concerning your sin? Do you think he does not take notice of what you do? Now, he's speaking, speaking here to Israel because Israel was his chosen nation of people. So he's, he's particularly attentive to his chosen ones. He's not necessarily oblivious to all men's sin, of course. He knows everyone's sin. But it is for this group particularly he's concerned because he says, I don't tire, I don't give up watching, I understand. You're not going to escape justice. But for them as the children of God, as the nation he has appointed to his favor, it means that they're going to receive his discipline. It means they're going to be chastised. It's, it's something that should cause them to give a second thought to their idol worship. He's going to take action against them, basically. Now, in our life today, the application must be exactly the same. By faith, we're in the family of God. By faith, we have that same relationship by grafting, as Paul puts it. So the application, as Scripture provides it, is to consider the greatness of God in light of how we choose to behave, choose to do what we choose to do. He's not ignorant of our sin. He pays attention to it. And he has the power to. 
So continuing now in our theme that God the Father prepares a way for His Son, now we're going to turn to chapter 41. Now, I've taken a fairly short time to get through 40 because it sets up 41. 41 is a trial. The whole chapter is set up like the trial in a courtroom. Here's how the logic of the scene plays out, or in this, this chapter plays out. God says in chapter 40, He said, I am incomparably great. And when you look at the creation and what men do with idols, it is obvious that it borders on the absurd for men to consider idols an equal with me and to treat them as such. So God says, how about we conduct a trial in which I, God is going to argue for his position and the idols will have a chance to argue for their position. Who truly is God? Who is truly powerful? He therefore places the idols of the Gentile nations on a trial or on trial in a sense and he uses one nation in particular as a representative for all Gentiles at this trial. Now, this is a nation that doesn't even exist, not in its proper form, in the day that Isaiah writes this. And yet, he's going to describe this nation so perfectly that it's easy to know who he's describing. At least it will become easy to know. The nation is Persia, and the, the leader is Cyrus the Great. He eventually names him later in about chapter 44. But before we even go to 44, just in 41... We're going to see details in this chapter that match him and his nation perfectly. So we know he's talking about Persia and Cyrus. So now here's where we get a chance to remind ourselves about the interesting pattern Isaiah follows in second Isaiah in this second half of his book. Second Isaiah is written as if he is living in the future time when Babylon has already taken Israel captive and is the strong nation on earth. And here, about 150 years from Isaiah's day, he's talking about when Persia comes into power, Medo-Persians, and they take over and destroy Babylon. That's all about 150 years from now in his real life. But he writes as if he's there now. So he writes in the present tense, but a present tense that is 150 years later than he's actually living. Secondly, we said he's going to weave together prophecies concerning that near future, that 150-year future, with a second set of prophecies about the far future of tribulation. It will make some of the text confusing if you don't keep it straight. So when we talk through the text, we're talking as if we're in 150 years from now, from Isaiah's point of view, and even then he'll still talk about things that are going to happen in tribulation. You'll see what I mean when we look through it. It does get confusing if you're not looking for that. All right? So 41, verse 1, follow me through this trial. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. I'm just going to pause there to set up the rest of the the chapter. He commands the peoples to come forward in judgment. This is another way of saying Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles. And what he's referring to here is the Gentile nations of the world that worship idols. And they're coming together, he says, for judgment. But the word for judgment in the Hebrew there, it, it refers to a court of law. It literally means judgment, but it can also be used in the sense of uh, court or charge, like the prosecution's charge. So he says, let's come together for a trial. That's another way to say it. Now remember the point of the trial, to prove that God the Father's superiority is greater than over any idol or any other so-called God. So he opens a trial by setting forth his case. And this is what's going to happen now. As we look forward from this point, God, like the prosecutor, he gives the case first. And then the second part of the chapter is going to be the defendant, which is the Gentile idols giving their case. I don't have to tell you how it ends, but we'll try to maintain some kind of suspense as we go through it. Now, what do you think God's most compelling proof is going to be? Well, 
The very fact that Isaiah could reveal 150 years in advance what's going to happen will become God's proof that he has the power to accomplish exactly what he wishes and that the idols don't. Because he's going to point to an event 150 years from now, describe it well, perfectly, and describe the effect that it will have on Gentile nations and their gods. The point being that if their gods were real, their gods could have foretold it too, and their people would have been prepared for it and able to respond. But because they were unable to to, to anticipate it, they were taken over by it. But the nation of Israel will be protected by it because they've had the benefit of the prophet telling them what's going to happen. So there's there's a sense of just being able to tell the future becomes the point of proof in this trial. Watch as it begins, chapter 41, verse 2. He says, Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. His case here begins with a description of this one whom God calls from the east. He calls him to his feet. Now, does your version of the Bible take verse 2 and capitalize the his before the word feet? That's an interpretation, not a translation, because there's no way to translate the capital his. It's just his in Hebrew. The translators have assumed it to be whose feet? Either God or Christ, probably. That's not really evident in the text. I think the best view here is that God calls this one to his feet. Whatever this one is that's going to come from the east, God calls it to its feet in the sense that God places them in power and sets them on their way, brings them into existence and prepares them for a purpose. And they take off in that purpose. And that purpose is to subdue the nations that they go after. And this one, by the way, is Persia. So the one that he calls in righteousness is Persia. Now, righteousness here does not mean that the one he calls is righteous. It means that the call is righteous. God's purpose is righteous. God setting them in this role and calling them into this work is a righteous thing. And they're being put up on their feet, if you were, as it were, put into existence for his righteous purpose. And he says, who's the one that's going to make this this conquering power come up into position? Well, he says, of course, I'm the one who's going to do it. God himself. Then he goes further in the text. Verse five. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. You remember that Isaiah is writing here again as if it in the present tense, as if he's there now in 150 years in the future. In that future time, as this power rises from the east, the coastlands, now where would a coastland be in Palestinian geography? Phoenicia, uh, Syria in the far north, Egypt in the south, right? It's the whole western side of, of Palestine. That makes sense, right? They come from the east, they go to the west. So as they come into the land, the coastlands are all fearing the arrival of this great force that's going to come in 150 years. And they encourage one another in the face of this threat. You hear them saying, be strong, right? Hold, we can, we can stand off. Now look at their chief response. What is their chief response to the coming threat? They encourage their idle craftsmen to work all the harder to produce new and better gods. 
ones that, quote, won't topple over. God's making his case here against the Gentile idols, right? He makes it through two contrasts. First, the contrast here between the true God who's working to bring this enemy and the man-made gods who are just striving to stay on their feet when the invader arrives. It's stark contrast, right? It's not, any, not even as though there's two gods in a competition. Who can stop the enemy? No, there's one God bringing the enemy. The other guy's just sitting there knocked over because it's coming. So there's a clear distinction of power there. And then the second one I've already told you earlier, the fact that Isaiah could foretell these events 150 years in advance proves God's sovereignty because he didn't just say, by the way, this might happen. He said, I'm going to make this happen. And then when history played it out 150 years later, anyone who read Isaiah would be watching these circumstances with full understanding of what's going on. While the Gentile people and their gods, their idols, are taken by surprise. They're having to encourage one another. Oh, my goodness, look what's happening. And then they're scared over it. Now, moving forward from that, God's going to demonstrate that his power in a far future day against idols will be complete. Now, what are we talking about there? What's the far future day? So he's made the case about the near future. Here's how I'm going to show you my power compared to idols in the near future. Now, take me to tribulation. How am I going to demonstrate my power in the far future? Verse 8, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, and you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges, you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, there's some subtle clues that tell us we're looking at the far future here. They're not obvious. Let me try to point them out to you. First, Israel was chosen by God, right? Chosen to serve Him ultimately. Because Israel follows the true God, in contrast to the nations that follow the idols, they're not going to have to fear. Where does Persia, Medo-Persia, first meet Israel as it exists in that day? In Babylon, in captivity. They're still serving Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in captivity, in that 70 years of captivity. They're at the tail end of that 70 years when the Medo-Persians come and, and take over, essentially, what's left of the Mesopotamian Empire of Babylon. And it's later that Cyrus frees Israel to go back into their land. That's where you get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on, right? So, what does he say here? I'm going to uphold you with my, right, right, my righteous right hand. You will see the effect of their coming as your benefit. God gave them, through Isaiah, this forewarning. That he was going to take these actions. So remember the, remember the logic here. What does God do? He's making a way for his son. To make a way for his son, he needs to put an end to the idol worship that had consumed Israel up until this point, right? Israel was known as an idol worshiping nation. After their captivity in Babylon, there's no record historically of Israel ever having idol worship in their land again as a nation. It doesn't mean they weren't in trouble in other ways, but they didn't idol worship. 
So this is God's plan to rescue them from that. Now, the far term prophecy kicks in in, uh, at about verse 12, because he says in a far future day, I'm telling you that's where it is. But in a far future day, this nation, Israel, will search for an enemy and not find one. Verse 12. You cannot say that about the Israel that went back into their land after their captivity. When they came back in, if you remember in Ezra, and they're coming into the land and, the, and they're trying to start, Zerubbabel's there, remember, he's going to set up the, the temple for the first time since the captivity started, and it's nothing there but the foundation. And they come to that, and what's the scripture in Ezra say about the circumstances of Israel when they come back to the city? What's their security situation? There's enemies all around, and they fear for, for all the nations around Israel. They have no wall and no protection. Clearly, if this were simply talking about how God will uphold them in the time of Cyrus, this wouldn't make any sense. You will look for those who are your enemies and not find them. Okay, well, that didn't happen. That can't be when it is, this verse can't be talking about their return to the land under Cyrus. So the near-term prophecy is sort of the beginning of this passage. It transitions, though, to a far future uh, fulfillment when you get to those verses in about 11 or 12. What is it then to say they will have no enemies when they go looking for it? What does that refer to? Well, we know that has to refer to the, tribu- to the uh, millennial kingdom that finishes tribulation, right? When they are the chief nation, there are no enemies on the earth for Israel anymore. Uh, in that future day, they're not going to find one because God will have come to rescue Jacob. He says he'll do it when, when the nation is like a worm. That caused you to pause at any moment you saw that worm. That's not a disrespectful term, believe it or not. Not in the way it's used here. I'm not encouraging you to go using that against others because if you're not talking in Hebrew, they probably will be offended. But in Hebrew, it's not. It's a literal name for worm. It is literally worm. But worm had one sense to it. When you use that term, it meant prostrate or helpless. The way you see a worm on the ground, really. Pull a worm out, lay it on the ground. Doesn't have hardly any hope. That same term, by the way, is used to describe the Messiah in Psalms 22.7 because it's describing him on the cross in the sense that he is helpless and prostrate on the cross. So that's the way it's used when it's describing him. So what we're hearing here is that the future for Israel, when God promises to rescue them, will come by God's hand when Israel is at its weakest and seemingly prostrate like a worm. That's the moment when God will, as he says here, uphold them. He says, I will help you, verse 14. So do we know of such a situation? Doesn't this fit perfectly with what we've studied up through Isaiah to this point? When is there a moment in this future time when Israel is seemingly at their end, helpless, prostrate, and in that moment, God rescues them? It's a confirmation yet again of of Zechariah 12, right? Of Israel rescued by Christ in those last moments as the Antichrist is seemingly got them right where he wants them. That's the sense of it. This is the meaning of when he says, I will help you. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer is Christ. That's how you're going to receive your help in this moment. So, putting this together before we move on in the trial. He has said to them, to the Gentile nations, to to their idols, I'm sending this force. What's your response going to be? Your people are going to be taken by surprise and just try to build better idols. He says to Israel, to the one I've chosen... You're going to be seeing this coming army as, a, as your liberators, in a sense. And in a far day, they're going to be, uh, at their weakest moment, I'm going to send the Holy One, the Redeemer, to rescue you from that same 
sort of moment in a future day, that will be the end of your idol worship forever. So think of it in two stages. The first stage is Cyrus and the Persians coming to free Israel from their Babylonian captivity. That put an end to idol worship in their world, in Israel. From that day forward, no more idol worship to, 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 to speak of taking place in Israel. Fast forward now to the future day when the ultimate fulfillment happens. God now comes and rescues Israel again, but now it puts an end to idol worship everywhere. Going into the millennial kingdom, no nation engages in idol worship. So the first one solved idol worship in Israel's day. The second one is an, a more complete fulfillment because it solves idol worship the world over. So he's judging them, if you will. He's showing how he will exhibit his own power against idols and, and uh, overcome them ultimately in the end. That section there at the very end of chapter 41, verses 15 and 16 that I read, that's a promise for that future day that Israel will become the most powerful nation on earth. But there's a, there's a very interesting little piece there, verse 15, when he says, I will make you a sledge, basically, a double-edged axe, if you will, and you're going you're gonna to destroy the, the nations that come against you. You're going to find a way to be more powerful than them. How does that happen? I mean, this is not to say Israel will simply be the most powerful nation on earth. That's true as well. But this is specific. This says in a moment of battle, they're actually more powerful than all the nations of the earth. They win the battle. Well, that comes out of Zechariah 12 as well. But it comes from an earlier part of the chapter. Listen to chapter 12 of Zechariah. We've been reading the last part of it several times in here when we talk about how Christ will return to them because they call on his name. If we back up in that chapter, look at what we hear happening immediately around that moment. Chapter 12 of Zechariah, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Does that sound like what we're reading already? It's interesting how this writer chooses to set the scene with the same stuff, right? Then he says, verse 2. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will be against Judah also. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I will watch over the house of Judah when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. What Zechariah is saying is that in the moment that the Antichrist comes against the city to attack it, shortly before, as we already heard, that the nation of Israel calls out on Christ, there is some battle taking place. The enemy does get to the point of attacking the city. The reason he doesn't take the city almost instantly, considering his much greater force, is that God steps in and starts defending Israel, but does it through the people. In other words, even before Christ comes back and destroys them all, he lets the people fight 
but within his own power in ways that make it supernatural, evidently supernatural. People, he says, are going to fight like they're David against Goliath. And they're going to have the power to, to, to destroy these armies, at least to an extent that they withhold or, or withstand rather the battle long enough for them to feel a bit of the, the heat. If you go elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that the length of this time is three days. So for three days, they're in this pitched battle in which God sustains them. And he says not just Jerusalem, but the tents of Judah. That's a representation of the people groups that live outside the wall or the city itself, but are part of, Jerusalem, part of Judah proper. So we're talking about a larger area than just the city. But all of those areas are being protected supernaturally by God for three days. So there's like a, like a pressure cooker situation for Israel just long enough for them to be brought to the point where when the Spirit's poured out, they call on Christ. But all that is what he's promising here when he says, I'm going to make you like a double-edged axe that can slay the nations that come against you. And God is seen as obviously the one who does the rescuing. Now, verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land foundations of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now we're going to come back to some of this later in Isaiah. He doesn't really get into it here. But what he's describing here is some of the miraculous provision that he gives to the remnant of Israel during tribulation when they're fleeing from the Antichrist. We'll look at more of this later when he brings it up again. But he's talking about how he, even in the midst of tribulation, continues to protect and provide for them so that they can still be there when the time comes for Christ's return. And as I say, we'll get to this later in the book. You see some of the detail here just in passing, right? They're going to have water when they need it. They're going to have uh, trees in the wilderness for either food or for protection in some sense. But he's going to make sure that he always gives them the provision they need. So he's, he's made his case. He says, in other words, I'm going to do all these things and see them through so that you know I am God. And in contrast to that, the nations who worship their idols are going to be caught up in these judgments. And in the moment, their response is going to be to make more idols. Illustrating that their idols were powerless to even understand what was happening, much less protect them from it. Now he's going to turn and it's the time for the idols to make their defense. So now the second half of the trial. And he, he says to them, basically, present your case. Verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we might consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we might know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So here's his challenge to the false gods. It's with respect to omniscience or knowledge of the future and of the past and its purposes. So he starts with explain the future. Prove your deity gods by explaining something about the future. Because the ability to predict the future is inherently a power of God. Inherently God's power. It requires that you be God to predict the future because it requires you have the ability to make it so. The ability to know the future 
implies the ability to control the future. You cannot know the future unless you have control over it. Because only the one who can control all things can say with any confidence how anything is going to turn out in the future. And you can just play some mind experiments, some thought experiments to prove that to yourself. For if you can say, well, I'm not controlling it, I just happen to know it. You have to ask yourself, well, what knowledge could come to you that is not in the creation? How can I say, for example, what's going to happen 10 minutes from now, unless I already understand everything that is happening in the universe, which could somehow impact that outcome? That in itself is omniscience. But more importantly, it means I have some understanding of what puts those things in motion, how they are arriving at where they're going. The control aspect is inseparable from the knowledge aspect of it. And so as a result, if something could know the future, it is proving itself to be in control of that future. Popular culture and, and even mysticism has, has taught us that the ability to know the future is something we can, we can have that can come from something other than God. There's no evidence in Scripture of that. The enemy himself does not know the future, much less can he give somebody in his control the power to know the future. There's no evidence of that. If the enemy could know the future, he could have avoided many of the very pitfalls that God has placed in his own path along the centuries to include the fact that as Christ went to the cross, he was putting to an end the enemy's dominion, and yet the enemy was complicit in that, thinking it was to his own benefit. If he had any understanding of the future, he never would have participated in the death of Christ on the cross. It's evident that the enemy himself does not have an access to the future, and as such, he can't impart it to anyone else. If anyone would know the future, it has to be that God has permitted him to know that. On the other hand, he says, why don't you just explain the past? If that's too hard for you, why don't you go backward and explain the past? What he doesn't mean is explain what happened yesterday. What he's asking for is explain the creation. Explain how everything came to be. God can explain the creation and he can do so through his word in perfect harmony with what we observe today. Because he was there and because he did it. No one else, no, no other human created understanding can arrive at that kind of knowledge. It has to be from the one who was there before the creation. Finally, he, I love this one. This to me was kind of the funniest one of the three. He says, why don't you just do something? I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's bad. Why don't you do something good or evil? See, now it's not about knowledge. Now it's about power. He's saying, I'm going to create this. God said earlier, I'm going to create this army that's going to show up and have all these effects and it's going to cause all this anxiety. Only for my people, it won't because I've prepared a place for them to be separate from the, the effect of it, to be prepared in a different way and to survive it. Okay, well, your turn, gods. Do something. Make something happen. I don't care if it's good or evil. Give us some reason, as he says in the text, to be anxious. He said, do something that we would look anxiously about and fear together. You know, the point of it is they can't do anything. They're completely static. Obviously, they're inanimate. They're just, they're just, idols just sit idly. They do. So, God declares the verdict. Now we're going to get to the verdict, the sentence, and the judgment, and, and the, the judgment of, of the trial. Declares the verdict. He says, in verse 424, where I already read, he said, the idols are of no account, meaning their work amounts to nothing. You know, he's not sitting here waiting for someone to pass the judgment. He passes it for us because the answers are obvious. Therefore, he says this. Now, looking at the people, he says, anyone who would choose an idol over God, given all the evidence in favor of God, that person is an abomination. Now, the word abomination means detestable. Now, when you read these words, remember, today, as we live today, roughly four billion people still worship idols around the world in the traditional sense of idol worship, not in the sense of, oh, money or power or career. or I don't think those are truly the idol that we're talking about here. We're talking about something you can hold in your hand. 
at some point, depending on how devoted you are to this, the image of the thing you're looking at and the concept become one and the same. You begin to think about that statue differently. You begin to walk past it differently. You begin to react to it when you see it. If somebody treats it poorly, you tend to get upset at them. If it's nothing more than just an image of the God and not the real God, who really cares what happens to it? It's just a picture or an image. But in reality, we start to treat it like the real thing because in this way we, in the way idols corrupt our spirit, corrupt our, corrupt our, our understanding of, of who God is, the two just kind of come together over time. So I guess my point is, you can make that distinction, but in reality it's not a big distinction, and in many cases there's no distinction at all. We may start off saying, oh look, I made, I made a statue of Zeus, honey, look. But after a while, that statue is so much Zeus himself, that if it topples over, we're disturbed by the thought of how we treated Zeus. And that's the problem with idol worship, is they're ultimately us looking at something we can see, touch, and feel, and making it the object of our, of our worship. I think, as you might imagine, that's the, I think the core reason why the second commandment, I guess, is you wouldn't have graven images. Now, if you have a picture at home of someone's painting of Jesus, probably with blue eyes, and if it could speak, it, it spoke in a British accent. Is that wrong? I'm not gonna, that's off the point a little. I'm not going to say categorically it's wrong. I, I, would tell you that, I would tell you that I can't see any good purpose in it in the end because... For the same reasons I just mentioned, the image starts to take the place of the reality and it's just, it's not helpful and it's unnecessary. I think we're better, I think there's a reason why Protestantism has traditionally left it to a cross and not to a, a statue of Jesus hanging on the cross, as you see in Catholic churches, because we want to stay away from anything that could cross that line. And it's, it's really like we set boundaries in other ways. You know, if we have a tendency to... to um, be prone to certain sins, we don't just walk up against those barriers, those, those limits to test them. We try to stay far away from them, right, to avoid any temptation or mistake. In this area as well, I would say if you, if you don't see yourself as an idol worshiper, then why take any risks and put an idol in front of you, you know, even if it's one that looks like what you think Jesus looked like, though we can't know what he looked like. So uh, better to not have one. That would be my opinion. But that's not, again, I'm not going to be uh, dogmatic about that. I think there may be some room there though I, I don't know where you'd find room. All right, so the, the verdict is guilty. Now, he pronounces a sentence, verse 25. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know, or from former times that we might say, he is right? Surely there is no one who declared. Surely there is no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one. There is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Several things to understand here. and We'll have to break it down to make clear what he's saying. First, this one from the north is the same one as from the east. It's still Persia. You'll understand why it was east first and now north in a minute. You'll understand why the two come together in a minute. Uh, this nation that is coming here is the one who is the sentence against those with idols. So back to what we've said all along. Persians rise to power. The Medo-Persians rise to power. They're coming into the land. They're taking over of Mesopotamia and Babylon. Ultimately, that resulting in Israel being set free to go back into their land. 
Meanwhile, it resulted in a complete destruction of all the other Gentile nations in that region. That's their sentence under this judgment. So for the idol worship around Israel, those nations that engaged in it around Israel are seeing the sentence of this trial carried out in the Medo-Persian invasion. Now, why is he limiting his judgment against just the nations around Israel in this day? Because they're the ones who brought the idol worship into Israel. It was the influence of those neighbors that resulted in Israel having any idol worship at all. The Medo-Persians come in. They put an end to any kind of worship outside of their own prescribed one. And more importantly, they let Israel go back in the land and have their own God. That was the interesting decree that comes from Cyrus. Now, that's where we're going to get back to your question from earlier of that. Look at the text. It says it says in verse 25, from the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. The he there is Cyrus the Great, the leader of the, the Medo-Persians. Now, he, we know from other places in Scripture, he was not a true believer in the living God. He is not saved, as we would say today. But he did recognize the God of Israel as existing. He called his name as such. That's what this refers to. And he understood, more importantly, that he was the one that brought Cyrus the Great to power, that he actually knew it was God the Father of Israel who was responsible for Cyrus the Great being in power. He actually knew that. Let me show you where you can find that. It is one example out of Second Chronicles. Now, this is the last verse of Second Chronicles. So if you know your Bible, what's the very next verse in the Bible after Second Chronicles' last verse? The first verse of Ezra. Of Ezra. Ezra tells you the story of how the nation of Israel came out of the Babylonian captivity and was allowed to come back into their land, right? Look at the last verse of Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36, 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. That's the setting, if you will, for how Israel comes to be, that the nation of Israel was set free by Cyrus. But do you notice why he says he's to do this? Because the God of Israel put him in power, gave him control of all the nations of the earth, and as a consequence of that, instructed him to let the nation of Israel go build a house for him back in, Jer- in Jerusalem. Did he understand why? It's really a curious thing. Wouldn't you love to have sat down with him and said, now what do you think you're doing here? What makes you want to do this? How God's spirit can work in the heart of a man who doesn't even know him truly, but yet can acknowledge him in this way. So, God boasts in the verses out of Isaiah, he boasts Who else could have known this so specifically? Remember, God alone can boast in this way and have it be authentic and truthful and therefore not idle boasting. He says, who else could have known so specifically that this is going to happen? Here's what he means by that. Here's why he's saying, here's why he's boasting. He says, uh, this one is going to come from the north and also from the east. What a curious specific. How can that be true, right? Well, The nation that's coming, as we said, is the Persian or the Medo-Persian Empire. They invade 150 years after this is written. But you notice as it was written, it was written in the present tense. I have aroused. Isaiah writes as if he's living in the future. But it's 150 years from now. The king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, his father was a Persian. They are the nation from the east. His mother was a Mede. They are directly north of uh, Babylon. The uniting of, by his parents, of the Mede and the Persian Empire is what gave rise to the Medo-Persians with Cyrus the Great. He unified those two powers. That's what led to their might and their ability to conquer. 
So, in a sense, this nation comes both from the east and from the north because the two forces of Medes and Persians come together in a single army and come down. That's a very interesting, specific detail you can't have imagined 150 years in advance without it being God. Isaiah finishes here by speaking as if it's in the future again. Looking back to Isaiah's day, he says, Behold, I told you this would happen. This is where it gets kind of confusing. He's speaking as if it's present day looking back, but he's writing it from that past point. So Isaiah's writing back here in, in his day as if he's in the future looking back at himself, saying, I told you this would happen, but he's actually telling you right now. But I told you this would happen. That's how it's confusing, you see? So he says, I told you this would happen. So another way to see it is you have to imagine someone in Israel reading the prophet Isaiah during the time of Cyrus the Persia's invasion. Cyrus the Great from the Medo-Persians. So somebody who is alive in the future as as a Jew has the book of Isaiah written 150 years earlier. He's reading it and he's reading it aloud as if Isaiah was standing there in the room talking to him saying, I told you this was going to happen. Meaning I wrote it 150 years ago. Therefore, he says, you can know that the Lord is the true God. You see how that confirms somebody's faith, if you will, in God? They're reading these words as they're being played out in real life and they're thinking to themselves, how could anyone have known this was going to happen? And the effect it's supposed to have is the sentence of the trial, the, the verdict of the trial. You see, I am the real God. You see, these other gods are not real. You should never have trusted them to begin with, but now you can see for sure that I have always been the real one. Now, Think of it in its parallel for the far future. In tribulation, men and women in that day, the Jews of that time in tribulation, will have not only the Old Testament, but they'll have the New Testament, which includes Revelation, of course. They're going to have, but they'll have all the Old Testament, everything we've been studying as well. And they'll be able to read the same kind, have the same kind of moment where they can read what was written thousands of years earlier about their future and see it happen around them and have that same confirmation that the Messiah was the real Messiah that Christ was who, he, who they waited for. He says, formally, I delivered good news in the sense that he wrote it earlier and they can appreciate it now. So how did these events prepare a way for Christ? In the short term, what they do is they reestablish the nation in the land with a temple again and Jerusalem comes back into existence. That's got to be there if Christ is going to come back, right? That's a pre- preparation for the way. In the far future, the fact that they're in Israel being attacked But being strengthened by the Lord, seeing Isaiah's writing or seeing any of the Old Testament prophets and knowing its fulfillment in their day prepares them as well for the revelation that Christ was their Messiah. He's preparing a way for their recognition of Christ in that future day. Can preparation bring you to faith? No. Preparation doesn't bring you to faith. The Spirit brings you to faith. So it's not enough that you're prepared, but it's still important to God that you be prepared. Similarly, you could say the same about John the Baptist. No one came to belief in Christ through John the Baptist, but he prepared a ready audience for whom, for, who was then ready to see Christ appear. It's like having groupies ready to come. As soon as you show up, you've got people waiting for you. That's what God did with, with John the Baptist. He prepared a way in that sense. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for an in-depth study of Isaiah. But thank you, Father, most of all for the, the work you've done through the centuries of men like Isaiah to record your words faithfully, to encourage us and strengthen our faith and our our knowledge and understanding of your greatness and your authority and sovereignty in this life and in the world in general. And Father, thank you that we could be a part of that. We pray a opportunity to return. We pray a continuation of the study with our presence and our energy and with your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.